Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Humans Vexus Manchester at home with me, Clint Boone. Across this mini-series, we're going to be talking to some more inspirational Mancunians to continue our celebration of the spirit of our city whilst we're in lockdown. In this final episode of the series, I'm joined by poet, musician and broadcaster Dave Scott, a.k.a. Our Kid. Dave talks about growing up in Levenshume. Grew up in South Manchester. Well, it was like a, a, a Irish or a Pakistani green and stuff like that. It was just fantastic. It was just a, such a great community to grow up in. Andy talks about pursuing a career in poetry. It got to the point where I was fed up of uh, I'm not doing anything with my, any of my words. And I just thought, why am I not putting it out there? It was a great pleasure to introduce a chap who's one of the most highly regarded artists, not only in the city of Manchester, but across the UK. He's a poet. He's a musician. He's also a broadcaster as well uh, since the end of last year. And he's the official poet for the NSPCC and for UEFA and Manchester United. His name's Dave Scott. You might have heard of him referred to as our kid as well. How are you doing, brother? Yeah, really good, man. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on, Clint. How are you keeping? Yeah, good. I'm, I'm settling into the lockdown. I went into it in a bit of a weird place, but it's actually... I don't know. It's, 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 it's turned out all right for me and the family, you know what I mean? Yeah. At the beginning, it was like the, the financial implications of everything that was going on. With yeah. the you know the radio station potentially was going to shut down, and all my DJ work went out the window obviously overnight. So it looked scary at the beginning, but I've uh, come through it all right really. And you know the radio station got saved, and I'm selling pictures of cows. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, I think that's been the beautiful thing of it, hasn't it? That we've sort of been stripped back to our minimalist, and we've, we're managing to survive in one way or another. I think I, I think that's been quite. <clears throat> I don't know, I don't know what my words in it, but there's been something in it where I've had to rely on our human instincts to sort of get by in, in, in time of crisis, I think. So it's, I think it's brought out loads, loads of things in people. I think it's particularly as well, I can only speak for the creatives of, of the, the world, but I think the creative people like ourselves have, have had to adapt. And I think, I think we spend a lot of time doing that anyway, don't we, just through our careers. You know, when I think about the last 30 years and some of the trips that I've gone on in terms of how to get a bit more money and it's like, <laughs> you end up doing all sorts of things, don't you? <laughs> Sounds quite dodgy, that, doesn't it? But, <laughs> but I'm dead chuffed that we've got you on this episode. I know it's a bit short notice was getting you in, but the fact that you are so informed of what's going on in the world, you're, you're very outspoken about what's going on, you're very eloquent. And the idea that this moment in time where there's protests across the world, there's statues being ripped down, it's just like, it's just an incredible moment in time. And for somebody like you who writes about that kind of stuff and observes it, it must be quite an exciting moment for you. Do you feel like something magnificent is about to happen like to the, the human race? Like we're on the threshold of something magnificent happening here in way of change. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a weird time that we're at. I just think that 
it felt quite seismic when the the statue came down uh, in Bristol a couple of days ago, and then subsequently the gone that there's been more taken down in London, uh, and this huge movement. But I think we were always coming towards sort of loggerheads. I just think it's it's, it's weird timing with the with the coronavirus going on uh, that we're sort of in this political, I don't know, unknown territory now. And I think that if we need to make any sort of movement forward for racial equality uh, and class equality and everything because i think the black lives matter isn't just for for black people but it's for every, loads of color because there's lots of equality across the world as well in it but i think it just sort of shows that with people marching behind the cause that, that things can definitely change but it, feel, it, it does feel like quite seismic i don't know if i'm excited as an artist um quite nervous actually because i think sometimes there's a bit of a pressure when you're asked to write about certain things and whether you can whether you can sum it up, uh, whether you, you're, you, what you, the words that you, you're not, I don't know, I don't know, Clint, when you've been asked to write something for somebody else, whether you feel the, the pressure, whether you're going to put somebody else's experience into words, you know what I mean? You, you can only really speak from your, from your own experience of, and that's yeah. why I was, with, with, I mean, we'll talk about later on, that the poem that I did for United We Stream, that my experience with racism has been through my dad's experience or through my wife's experience as a, as an Asian woman. And the, abhorrent crimes the, the, the way that she's had to live through uh, the 80s and 90s and even up until now in the 2020 and these things are still going on i feel like when i write about that certain stuff like i said i'm quite passionate I, I just, injustice uh, in any form is something that i completely i hate really really strongly so i do, I do but i do feel the pressure when i'm trying to write about these sort of certain things but i can't do anything but write about it because I, I am really informed by by your environment yeah from first-hand experience as well i mean so we're talking for those that don't know you talking there as a writer because you get a lot of commissioned work don't you as a poet you get asked to write for a specific event or yeah person or whatever that's why you're saying about the difficulty of uh, writing but we'll see as creatives as writers we'll see what comes out of this period because I'm, I'm writing music all the time for another project but uh, whether I'll end up writing about what I'm witnessing at the moment I don't know but I'm glad that somebody is. I was going to say to you do you, do you wish a lot more of these uh, pop star people out there uh, embrace politics and the world and social unrest and all these topics in the music some of these people have got massive platforms haven't they and they very yeah, rarely yeah. go with the politics on it. Yeah, that definitely. I, I think that um, first and foremost, when we're looking at people on a, a global level, is that they're more concerned about the PR that comes behind it. Not, not, nobody, especially in America, wants to be outspoken about Trump, or um, especially if they're not black. It's very, it's very rare you see anybody step outside of their comfort zone in Hollywood. Mm. I find it, I find it quite horrible that, uh, or ironic maybe that the when the coronavirus kicked off and you had all them um, celebrities doing that cheesy imagine all the people think and then where are where where are they now i've not seen i've not, I've not seen any of them videos coming around well come on we're all talking about unity as one where i'm not i've not seen that i'm not seeing that video go around but that's what i mean it's all they're all in this sort of cotton candy world in hollywood and they need to be stepping above but then you look at do we play enough protest music on the radio i know you do it excess but on, on like a, on, on a national level do, do we do that are we allowed to when you when you speak about these certain things, do we have the broadcasting opportunities on TV? Or you know, I think the internet's very strong, but I think you, you do need to be able to put it out in the mainstream media. Um, that, that's, that's that's difficult. Eh? That new podcast you started doing, Scotty and Scotty and Motty, is it? Scotty and Motty, yeah. <laughs> that way around, not Motty and Scotty. Scotty and Motty. Scotty, yeah, he's, he's not he's not very happy about that actually. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast. It's only like five or six episodes in, I think. But it's a podcast where you just you discuss just absolutely anything. But a lot of it is like social stuff and um, social commentary that you just wouldn't get away with on live radio or, or live TV, would you? 
No, definitely. I mean, that, that's been 20 years in the making, that, that podcast. I mean, we've been talking about doing this before. Podcasts even existed. Me and Justin have known each other since 2002. We, we, we used to work in Malia. I say work as a, as a loose term. We used to like um, just get pissed. I mean, I'd I swear on this, Clint. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah we used to get absolutely pissed out of our heads and just, say, I, I, I'm just try and survive for six months in Greece. But we've yeah. known each other for 20 years and we thought, we've always, we're always quite opinionated and stuff. So why don't we just like sit down, record ourselves chatting. And we just talk about topical news and then we record one on a Monday and one on a Thursday talking about either everything from culture to what's going on in the world. And it just, it just so happens that we decided to do it. It coincided with probably the, the biggest crisis that's going on globally. And we're going to pick the more topical time, I suppose, to start it off. It's funny you should say about, can you swear on this, uh, on this podcast? I noticed earlier on, I was looking on iTunes at the list of um, like 45, I think, 45 episodes we've done. And they're all marked with the, the little red letter E, apart from the Andy Burnham one. <laughs> <laughs> the Andy Burnham podcast is apparently the only one that didn't have any swearing on it, I think. So. But let's talk about your story. Where did you, uh, you're born in Longsight, I believe. Is that right, Dave? Yeah, uh, born in Longsight, 1981, to an Irish mum. And my dad was mixed race, but didn't want to wear that till later on down the line. Grew up in South Manchester. I was born to two team parents uh, in South Manchester. Yeah, my mum and dad are just both working class people. Uh, my dad's a taxi driver and has turned into the worst passenger now because as he, he knows every back route in Manchester and he's always picking you up and how you can drive and how you can't. Um, <laughs> and my mum was just like, she was, she was a stay-at-home mum to, to three kids. Then we moved to Levenshume, which was, it was like a little island. Do you remember, do you remember Levenshume in the, in the 90s? It was like the best place for beer or the, the, the pub crawls through Levenshume was fantastic. I've heard it from other guests that were, uh, other guests grew up around that, like um, Aziz Ibrahim grew up in that. He said it was a very strong Irish community, but he said there was quite a lot of uh, um, unity between the Irish and the Asians because they all felt a little bit like they were outsiders at the time and they made out there was, they, there was a bit of a coming together of those two cultures in that part of the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it was great. Uh, it was like a, a, a Irish or a Pakistani green and stuff like that. It was just a fantastic multicultural community. Uh, but the, the bar crawls that used to, I think there was 26 pubs at one point within two miles. I think I got 13 in a row once and I, 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 I never passed that. Uh, but it was just such a great community to grow up in. Uh, I grew up in the, when Britpop was uh, blowing up. I know Tony McCarroll pretty well. It was quite, it was quite proud. He was a Levenshume lad and then he moved off to obviously to Oasis and that. Um, the 90s were fantastic. And that's when I really started writing because I, I was sort of, there's a line in one of my poems is that uh, I was raised on a diet of Britpop and hip hop, is biscuits and trips to the chip shop. And that sort of defines me really because I sort of have one angle, like I, I love guitar music, but equally, the lyrics of hip hop and stuff like that. So that's really sort of informative of my, um, me creatively uh, in, in terms of telling stories. Went to school in Gorton, a place called Spurlier, which I was one of four people that finished with five GCSEs uh, mm. in, in the school. Yeah, the year I left school, we were second in the country of worst GCSE performances in the country, but we were top of team pregnancies. <laughs> <laughs> So we were good. We were good at some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> procreating. Yeah, procreating. But I, I never, I never really got any uh, push creatively from my teachers and stuff. Like I think, I think they were, they were sort of readying everybody to go into a career of call centres or digging on the road. And I'm not, I'm not knocking them professions or anything like that. But and that's probably why it took me so long to to come out as a poet or creative or whatever, because you were, you were never told that that was an accessible way of, of living. 
your mate to be picking up phones or picking up a shovel. Did you get proper jobs then before you became an entertainer? Did you have proper jobs? Clint, if, if I had to print my CV out, I'd go out of ink cartridges because it's about, it's, it's, it's about four inches thick, my CV. <laughs> I, I found a little scam. Uh, and what I used to be able to do is call centre work was so easy to pick up. So what I used to, and I used to have these recruitment agencies and they were popping up all left, right and centre during the, you know, I was, I was living for the weekend, so I wasn't asked about any sort of career. Mm-hmm. So what I used to do is, I used to like bung a CV together, give my mate's mobile, my mate's telephone number and email address. That was my reference and he pretended he was my boss. And then I used to, used to go to all these different recruitment agencies and then sign up at a call centre. And at call centres, you get like four weeks training. So you're doing literally next to nothing. You're just paid to go and sit in a classroom. And then it got to the fifth week and I thought, sack that, I'm not doing it, bored of that. So I just used to, for like two years, I was pretty much just slumming between, <laughs> between call centres of, of Manchester. <laughs> just basically take, taking a wage for four weeks and then blowing it for four weeks and then to just get just getting another job. And then when I ran out of call centres, they decided that I need to, I went to Greece and then just didn't come back for six months. Didn't, well, I had nothing to come back. I had like a, I was going out with a really, really insane girlfriend at the time um, who put a pipe pot over me. I don't think that when that happens, it's time to leave the country. What <laughs> <So, laughs> was in Greece for you? Uh, it was in uh, Crete in, in Malia. Basically went on a lad's holiday and then I just turned around to my mates and I said, I'm not going back. And they said, well, what, what do you mean? I said, I just can't be asked. I've got nothing to go back for. So we were all sat, I, I, and they, we were all sat around the pool waiting for the coach to take us back to the, to the airport to go home. And I didn't have anywhere to live. And I was sort of sat on my, sat on my suitcase. I had a hundred euros in, the, in my pocket. And then I, they, they went, you're coming back, you're coming back. So I'm not, I'm just going to sit here. And I, I was absolutely bricking it. But because I'd gone, I, I'm out of hubris, I thought, I've got to see it through now and we'll just see, you know, we'll just see what happens. So I, sat, I remember being sat on my suitcase watching the, um, the coach go past and them, 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 them waving. And I'm like, ah, inside going, like, what the fucking hell have I done here? <laughs> and then I ended up, um, some, some girls from Oldham uh, actually put me up for a week. Uh, and then I just lived with them. And then we, I found like bar work. And then again, it was just the same cycle as it was at the call centres. I, I'm, you know, if I've got one talent, Clint, I think I'm pretty good at getting jobs. <laughs> Bit of a blagger. Yeah, blagger. Well, I'm, yeah, I think it's in the DNA, I guess. But um, yeah, I talk a good game. I think when, when, when I have to get in there and actually do the work, it's a different, a different story. When you were in Greece, did you, were you a musician then? Did you have a guitar with you? No, I was, I was DJing mostly. I was, um, yeah, I was, I was like a, doing an indie night on a first, like a Manchester night we were doing, a bar called Fontaine's. Managed to blag it as a DJ gate crasher, and I know next to nothing about house music and stuff. And then I was there. I, next minute, I find myself. I've got all these pissed up girls coming over saying, "Can you put such and such a track on?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." And I'm just, just you know, do all this sort of business in it. <laughs> Your arms out. Tell me about it. <laughs> Keep pressing play and shout Boone Army down the mic every. I make a living out of it, mate. But yeah, I, I, yeah, and then so I wasn't, I wasn't playing guitar. I, I was playing guitar, but I was very, I wasn't sober enough, long enough to try <laughs> to, to to actually do any uh, making any music. But I was always writing, and I was quite, I was quite uh, more. I was like, thought of a young romantic back in the day, and I was like, I was writing these horrendous love poems that would never see the the light of day. Uh, you know, about missing Manchester or splitting on that girlfriend at the time. But writing, writing words was always my thing, and it's like I never really knew how to. Because being a poet was, was never a thing. It was never like, poet, was, you know, you don't get poets that come from South Manchester. Or Man- I, I, and, and this is before I'd actually even heard of John Cooper Clark, just because just, just I wasn't aware of, of, of his name. So I was never like aware that there were any sort of poets that weren't from Eton or Shakespeare or stuff. It was never sort of a lifestyle that, 
that, that I thought I could pursue. So yeah, so I was more sort of hip hop, but then I didn't feel cool enough to come out and be an MC. So it's sort of in this sort of juxtaposition of what, what do I do? It's funny you mentioned John Cooper Clark because he did a previous episode of this podcast and he talks about how there was one teacher at his school who was really into poetry and it, he taught this class so beautifully about poetry that most of the, the lads in the class all wanted to be poets. It, it, and wow. it's because of this one standout teacher that really embraced it and sold it to him in a good way, you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, poetry, I wasn't really keen on reading the books that were given us at school, but when something was put into verse, it always appealed to me a lot more for some reason. Yeah. But yeah, poetry was never really perceived as being very cool, really, when I was a kid. It was always something, you know, a bit sort of whimsical, wasn't it, by the, the, the man in the street? Definitely. It's like I, I, I always say that uh, poets, I, I, my impression of poets was be, to be running through fields of flowers, and I, my, my upbringing was running from the police. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, That's what your poetry is all about. If people aren't familiar with the, your, your work, it's very much, it's very gritty, isn't it? And it's very based on a lot of life experience, a lot of first-hand experiences, you know, friends around you, you write about, you write about yourself as well at times, but it's quite gritty, isn't it, what you do? I understand why people would say it's gritty, but like, I grew up as, as a fish in a bowl that didn't know any different. You don't, you don't realise how, how rough, I suppose, your area is until you actually step outside of, of, of the bubble, do you? And you don't really like, I, I'm writing a book at the moment about certain experiences, and, and it's all, only because I've got the the benefit of time and distance from my youth that I actually realized that shit, I you know, like I, I grew up at the, like I had mates that were killed. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like best mates that were, that were shot and stuff like that. But at the time, because you have no comparison, comparative state to live, you can't really say that that's a, a no, a horrible thing. See, I, I don't, I, I don't see it like that. That's just my truth lived experience. You know what I mean? So, so when I, I, I understand what you mean, gritty, but that, that was just the, yeah. The lens that I sort of saw my life through, I suppose. The reality. That was your yeah. reality. Well, but going back to music, what were the uh, first records you bought back then? <laughs> oh, God, oh, this is going to be embarrassed me on social media. So uh, the very first two records I remember buying, one was Right Said Fred's uh, Too Sexy. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> I've just lost about a thousand followers on social media. Or maybe gained some, I don't know. Uh, and then with, within the same week, I think I brought... Criss Cross's Jump, uh, that was my too naive. Um, and then I wore my pants back to front, being so cool. And then, uh, but when I started properly getting serious into music, I think the first album was Snoop Dogg Doggy Style and it was Oasis's Definitely Maybe. They were the, they were the two sort of things that formed my, um, like I said, I, I always sort of had a strand that I, I'd have mates who were banging to hip hop and then I'd have like the Oasis thing as well. Like, so they were the whole, the, the, the two sort of uh, strands for me. What about gigs when you start going to gigs? Uh, very first gig I went to see was uh, Fuji's, and that was 97. I saw them at uh, Birmingham Arena. And it was a horrible experience, actually, because it was an arena. And hip-hop, I don't think, especially then, didn't tra it doesn't travel very well in certain size, certain size arenas. And they actually had Jay-Z supporting them at that time. Jay-Z was completely un complete unknown. And uh, do you remember Shola Rama? Yeah. You might need somebody. Yeah, yeah, she, she, she was, um, I think she supported them as well. That was a... That was the first gig, but the, the, I went with my parents to that. And then I remember seeing Eminem at the Manchester Academy in 98, and that was amazing. Just, I, I, just a different, same genre of music, but just because you've got that sort of sweat and energy, that condensed, you know what I mean? That, 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 that was a huge influence for me. Uh, I've seen Oasis a millions of times. Um, I've seen Elbow. Remember, the, I think it was the early 2000s. I was really big into that uh, the Twisted Nerve scene when um, Ballet Drawn Boy, big into... 
uh, Elbow, Dulce, I Am Clute. I absolutely love uh, Johnny Bramwell. Johnny Bramwell, I think I Am Clute is probably the band that I've seen more than anyone. Uh, I don't know, you might ask me later on about favourite band unions, but I Am Clute, for me, everything I've ever wanted to be in terms of a storyteller, yeah. not only in song, but in between songs as well. Johnny Bramwell, for me, is just uh, incredible. He's genius, isn't he? Yeah. I think he's a bit, a bit, a bit unnoticed at times. He's an absolutely phenomenal writer. He's world-class, isn't he? Let's talk about when you... So you had your, your, your day jobs, your call centres, blagging all that kind of stuff, blagging a wage. When did you manage to start moving over into music being uh, a career or poetry being a career thing? Uh, it basically got, it got to the point where I was fed up of, um, of not doing anything with my, any of my words. And I just thought, why am I not putting it out there? And I think what, it, what we are as creatives, especially in the, the formative years, is that we're just too shy that people might not like it. And I think, I think we, we care too much about other people's criticism before we, we, we are our own obstacle, I think, in many ways, before we put anything out there. We got to the stage where I had so many lyrics and I thought, if I don't do anything with them now, I'm never going to do anything. I don't know why I got to the age of, I don't know, 96 or whatever, if I live to 96. I really, really doubt I'm going to make it that, <laughs> that, that, that far. <laughs> but um, it, I think it's the worst thing. And I always, I, before, I, before I actually release any poetry, I've always been telling the friends that, you know, it's better to live with regrets of things you did than it is you didn't. So I just took the punt. I put a Fringe show on in Manchester Fringe Festival. At Joshua, is it Joshua Brooks? Joshua, yeah. yeah, Joshua Brooks. So I basically booked that out. I'd not told any of my mates that I'm a poet or I was, in, I was into poetry, booked it and then just put a flyer up and then just messaged all my mates and said, listen, I'm, I'm going to be doing a poetry gig and they're all like, what the fuck do you mean poetry gig? Who do you think you are? Look at Oscar Wilde here and all that. <laughs> so, so they were like, I said, is this a wind up? I said, no, I'm being serious. I said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I said, I think people just stand in front of, in front of you and read poetry because I'd never been to any open mic nights. I had no experience of anybody doing any spoken, like spoken word or that. Like, What's that? That just sounds like the, I wouldn't want to go to that. So why would anybody else come to it? So basically, <laughs> so, basically almost, so I was stepping out into a, I, basically, I took a massive punt on myself and all my mates running up to the gig were like that. I hope you fall on your ass. I'm going to barrack. You know, you know, good, good Mancunian mates keep trying to keep you grounded. I hope you're shit. <laughs> and multiple, multiple messages from multiple friends. And anyway, I got to the night of the gig and I was absolutely bricking it. I'd only ever been pissed on karaoke, uh, standing in front of people before that. And then just basically stood there and read poetry and it went down really well. And afterwards, all my mates were like saying, well, why, why on earth is it taking you this long to try and do something with it? And then I was like, okay. So then you've got the seal of approval of people that, you know, if, if, they, if they would have hated it, then I don't think it would have, have gone any further because I think I, you can, I can take criticism from, from people I don't know because it, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. But for them not to like it, that would have probably meant a, a hell of a lot more. So then I just, I put a poem called Nana Calls Me Cock up on the internet on National Poetry Day, and that went viral. I think it did like 250,000 uh, views in, in, in a day. And then, um, and then I quit my job off the back of that. Really? Yeah, I just, well, I, I said to the missus, I said, I think there might be something in this poetry gig. She goes, are you sure? I said, I don't know, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a crack. And at this point, she's eight months pregnant as well. So I, I, I had minimal savings. I'd quit another job that I'd managed to blag, that I'd like, that, that, that I enjoyed doing. And then just walked out the door and I said, right, I'm going to be a poet. Told all my mates and said, you're off your fucking head. I went, well, you know, if I don't, if I don't. and the thing is, it's like, like we were saying at the, the beginning of the podcast, when you're sort of forced into a position where it's either sink or swim, like we are in this sort of survival of coronavirus or lockdown, mm. you have to make situations work. 
you know what I mean? So, so I, I was sort of forced into that. So I was, I was just like putting my face everywhere, trying to, oh, someone needs a poetry or something, someone needs writing. And then just basically furrowing, furrowing around for work. Uh, and then I got a, some, somebody had come across the Nana calls me cock poem and then commissioned me. And then that was it. I sort of like, I was like, you sort of on your way there, but I was still, I was still living hand to mouth. It's not, not, it's not a lucrative career to be, <laughs> to, to, to be a poet by any stretch. Yeah. But is that validate that once you've got that validation, I think you have more faith and more confident in yourself about what you can do. And now I've been doing it professionally, professionally. I say that still that saying it, saying it professionally, putting professional next to my name is still a, <laughs> still don't feel real, but I've been doing it properly four years this year, uh, working for myself. Not long. It does feel like you're at the beginning of something, doesn't it? To me, it does anyway. It feels like 10 years from now, you'll be an household name and people will know who you are. And, uh, Beyond the uh, city gates, the rest of the world will know about you one day. Let's talk about a really special thing you did last week. So United with Stream is a thing that's been set up during the lockdown to raise funds for uh, people that have been affected within the nighttime economy, as they call it, so clubs, bars, venues. And they've been doing these streamed events over the weekend, and you popped up, I think, two weekends ago. You did a little, hardly a poem, it was more of a little speech, wasn't it, about the George Floyd murder. And it was absolutely beautiful what you did. It was pretty much unscripted I think you said just from the heart live to the camera yeah tell us about that first of all how, how did it come about what were you doing there were you invited along to do some poetry anyway what led up to that little George Floyd thing that you did? yeah uh, basically spoke to Sasha Lord who was running the United We Stream um, I think at the beginning of the coronavirus before before they started doing gigs and he asked me if I'd get involved at some point and then I got an email I think about four weeks before asking me if I'd like to come down and do some poems and stuff like that so yeah no problem at all and it was a weird you all know it's weird experience in it DJing or, or performing to, to nobody. It was like it's, you know the only thing I've to compare it to is a really bad gig in Wigan that I did years ago, which I'll never be returning to. I, 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 love, I love Wigan, but they're not into the poetry over there. I tell you. <laughs> um, but so I was, yeah, so I was invited along, and then just with the George Floyd thing happening uh, running up to that week, I think like everybody across the globe with. Um, half a heart has sort of been affected by what's what's been happening and then i got talking to my wife about it on the the day that i was due to perform and we were talking about like racism um and i was talking about how my dad because when, when my dad grew up he was always referred to as little p-word uh in, in, in the pubs and stuff like that and, and these is these are by like mates and like i, I because he didn't know who his biological dad was for a, for a long time, up until I think up until he was twenty, and then he didn't realise he was mixed race up until then. But he he'd gone through like a lifetime of um, racism. But he still to this day thinks it's just banter, do you know? Because he's because he's grew up with it. He just thinks it's accepted in a certain way. So we were having a conversation about that, and then I said to my wife, I said, "What experiences have you had of um, of racism?" And then she was telling me stories about when she'd been beat up on multiple occasions. She thought she's also from from Longside, and she's half Indian, half Irish. Mm. And she was saying just because of the colour of her skin, she was she was getting beat up quite a bit when she when she was younger. Uh, and as you can imagine, that was the first time we've actually spoke about it. And like we've been married, we've been together like fifteen years, and she and she never mentioned it. So then I'm at the Berry Met in the green room and it's just a strange atmosphere because you're, you're welcomed in and everyone's all kitted out into gloves and I was really worked up and I was watching my, my set was delayed by about 40 minutes and I was just sat in the green room watching um watching news footage about what was happening in America and then I was just getting really more and more sort of worked up and uh I was I, I was on the, the cusp of either saying I can't do this performance and then I said come on you said stop being such a soft ass <laughs> and then um just walked out and then 
uh, I thought, right, I'm just going to, I'm going to say something. I said, I think, I think that, it's like you're saying that, the, and I'm celebrity sometimes, I'm not saying I'm a celebrity, people of a, of a, that have a pedestal don't speak politically on important matters. So I just basically just opened my mouth and then just whatever came out was, was, was coming out. Um, and then halfway through, especially when I was talking about my dad and my, my, um, my wife in, the, in the, the piece, I was like, I thought, I'm not going to make it through this. I could, I could sort of feel myself breaking down inside. And especially, because I do worry that, like, I've got, I've got mixed race kids and you do wonder what sort of world we bring them up, we're bringing them in, into, if we allow racism to, to continue in the way it does. And so, so I, I feel like it's an obligation as artists, and especially as someone who's, who's the son of someone who's mixed race, who's the husband of someone who's mixed race, as the father of someone who's mixed race, to speak on these issues, that's what should be done. I feel, I feel like everybody should be speaking about these certain things. Do you know what I mean? So, so I just went out and um, just basically just, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to say. And then I, I just, it was a weird sort of out, out of body experience. I just remember being really hot could feel like myself about to cry and croak in my throat. And it's just, um, yeah, it just sort of came out. But the response has been, has been great um, to it. Not that I did it for that, but it's good that it sort of, if, if it helped highlight any awareness. But then on the, on the back of that, Sasha's actually donated all the money to the Black Lives Matter bailout, uh, bailout protesters over in America off the back of, off the back of that show. Let's have a listen to it now. This is, uh, I was going to ask you to recite it, but I know it's very emotional, so we're just going to listen to the audio of you doing this at the Bury Met as part of United We Stream just a couple of weekends ago, and this is you talking about George Floyd. I wanted to come out tonight and perform poetry and smile for your entertainment. But George Floyd was killed, and I can't get that man's face off my mind. I took my children to play in a field today and had to hide as I cried inside because George Floyd was killed and I can't get that man's face off my mind. Now, I didn't know George Floyd, but I know the enemy that killed him. It's the same enemy that's haunted my friends for life. It's the same enemy that's physically beat my wife. It's the same enemy that has taunted my dad down the pub. It's the same enemy that I fear when I see my children's faces and look and wonder, what on earth did I bring you into this place? Do you face a similar fate as your mum, as my dad, as George Floyd? And we look stateside and people say the problem is in the US, but that's naive. The problem is with us and I'm tired, tired, tired and angry about how many times we look around and we say that this place is great and it is and it's great in, in so many aspects, but you try selling that dream, that freedom to people that has witnessed racial hate because we are not doing enough and I apologize because we can't and it's on me and it's on you and it's on us. So that was Dave Scott at the United Restream event just last weekend or two weekends ago at the Met in Bury. Absolutely beautiful. At what point, Dave, did you start 
putting your music to your poetry? Because I was, I thought you were going to say you started as a musician and the poetry came later, but it's the other way around, isn't it? You were a poet first and you started playing guitar along to it. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's a mixture of both, to be honest. Um, and I, I, for some reason, I could never marry the two up that I could actually do, do music and put my words to it. I yeah. think probably the, the biggest comparison that I would get was usually, um, I think it was Jim Salveston of, of XS actually said he's like Mike Skinner in a Parker. I suppose that's the way to sort of refer to my music, I suppose. But um, I've always been able to get by on music production software, so your logics and stuff like that, so I can do like a rudimentary beat. But I, can't, I could never play anything to the level that I'd, I'd feel comfortable with putting it out there. But then um, somebody, uh, an ex-manager that I had, uh, he put me in touch with Blueprint Studios. Uh, Gaz over there, a producer. And then he put me in touch with um, Steve White. And then we sort of formed this, this sort of trio where Gaz Hadfield had put the tracks together uh, with, with Steve's drums and stuff. And it was just, it was a weird, it's just, it's just it's great how we can work now as artists where you don't actually have to be in the same room as anybody and just a phone call and you can put stuff together. And that, that was very much, because I think me and Steve had appeared on three tracks before we'd actually even met, before we'd met each other. Really? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And then like, I was sat at home and, uh, and then I was telling my mates, because my mates is a massive um, jam and the, the Style Council fan. And I said, Steve White's on my first single. He goes, fuck off. I said, listen, I said, seriously. He goes, yeah, but Steve White was on my wedding song. I said, I, I know it's crazy, isn't it? And it was just, I, I, I still can't believe it now. And I don't know if you know Steve. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, he's one of the nicest blokes. There, there is not a bit of ego with him considering everything is achieved such a down-to-earth lovely 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 man that sort of dynamic work together and then I've, got, I've started getting a bit more confidence um on the piano and playing a bit more guitar and stuff and I think everything like I said creatively is the confidence thing once once you sort of earn that belief however you want to do it, whether it's validation through somebody else or not giving a toss what anybody else thinks once you've actually got that confidence then I think you sort of it's really empowering and now I, I, I don't really I, there, used a, there used to be a point in my career where I'd try and play up to the masses, especially with the, the whole uh, kid thing, because it's a, obviously it's a Mancunian idiom or whatever you want to call it. And um, sometimes that would stereotype me and people would see me as being a certain person. Because I, I, the uh, kid was thing was actually, um, it was more of a parody because you wouldn't expect, I don't know, an MC to be our uh, kid because of the whole Liam Gallagher and Oasis sort of thing. But, my uncle used to call me Arkid all the time and he was never into Oasis and I've come from my mum's side of the family are all Irish and I think Arkid's actually an Irish phrase originally. So that was my idea behind it. But now sort of, I feel so confident in terms of, I don't, I don't chase attention. I'm quite confident in what I want to do and the reasons I want to create nowadays. Whereas before, Andy, it was always sort of playing up to, oh, well, what, what will the people that like the music before and what will they expect under the Arkid sort of thing? And now it's like, ah, well, you can either come with me while I do this other thing. You're not, you're, I mean, sure you've gone for it yourself, Clint, when you're trying different musical ventures. It's more for, if you're not creating for yourself, then you, sort of, then you lose a lot of the stuff behind it, I think. Yeah, I do, I do constantly do things that I think people are probably going to think I'm a dick for doing, but we would do it anyway. Yeah, and, I, I, and, and as you should as well, because I think it's better because the, 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 if you do that 10 times, the one thing that you do that comes out of you being a bit left field will be, it is the amazing thing, isn't it? I think people that try too hard that, to stay to stereotype, I think it just becomes a bit humdrum and a bit, a bit of like wallpaper. Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the things I mentioned on the intro. You, you are the official poet now for the NSPCC. Let's talk about that first of all. Where did that come from? Yeah, well, um, well, Clint, for, for a start, every time me and you are at NSPCC gig, stop giving me the microphone when I'm pissed because... <laughs> 
<laughs> every, every single time I don't, I, I get it. I, I suffer really badly from social anxiety. So when I'm in them big posh rooms like the NSPCC, I have to throw the beers back because I, I feel really, really nervous. And then I go the other end of the spectrum and think, yeah, I think, I think this world needs me to do Underworld's Born Slipper. Clint, give me the mic. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so that came about, uh, again, it was just, it's like domino effect, I think. I think when I got my first commission uh, after that, the people at the NSPCC had I'd seen that, and uh, Rachel Walker, she'd uh, give me a, a call and said, would I like to get involved with them and do a lot of charity work and then write some commissions for them. So I've done quite a lot of, I've done about four or five different gigs. And the other one, the other gig I mentioned at the beginning there was uh, MUFC, Manchester United. Who, I assume you've been a supporter all your life, have you? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was taken to my first game at the age of eight or nine by my dad and then just fell in love with the club. Just the, First and foremost, it was the fans, just that sort of, camaraderie and falling in with the you know it's like a belong I, I, I always think it's like a rites of passage when you when, when especially for me anyway finding a football club and then it was the first time I was allowed to swear in front of my old man I know and that's that's the coolest thing and that, that, that's what I used to say I'm going to the football for it was more because I wanted to go and swear because I think around the time I got into the United it was when um one of the songs they were singing was uh, Life of Brian's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life so it was like well life's a piece of shit and I'd always I'd, I'd be so excited to like coming it's coming it's coming and I got like shit <laughs> and that, that 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 and then from there it was just it was like a becoming an adult and I, I was allowed to do certain things but yeah I've, I've, loved, I've loved Man United like forever it's, it's it's in my family uh but yeah so to be able to to be able to write for them was um I still pinch myself now when when you know you know to be able to I was I was a decent footballer growing up and I, I'd actually had uh trials at Bolton Wanderers I'd play I'd play and, and play for them for a bit but I was too much of a short ass and uh, like girls and bear too much to actually pursue it as a as a proper career. So I was, I, while I, whilst I never actually got to play for my football club, I, I was able to, you know, uh, walk in the dinner changing rooms or perform for them in in one way or another. Do you know what I mean? So, so that so that's always been amazing. And I've seen behind the scenes and like where Matt Busby used to sit at the cliff and and, and things you wouldn't get as a as a fan. Uh, and that was just that's just incredible. Uh, the other gig you got recently as well, which is brilliant. Uh, BBC Radio Manchester uh, towards the end of last year started doing a show for them. How was that going? I love it. I, I never actually thought that uh, I wanted a radio show. It's nice to sort of get chance to speak. I live in a house of three young girls under the age of seven and a wife and a dog that doesn't shut up. So I never really get any time to speak. That's why Clint will, will be talking here till at least another four hours just so I've got I can use my voice because I, I don't get used at home. <laughs> But yeah, I love it. It's just a, a nice chat show. Uh, yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. Brilliant. Let's talk about Manchester, should we? The city of Manchester. Yeah. To me, you're one of them people that totally embodies the spirit of the city. I, I mean, I know a few people like that, but you're definitely one of them. What do you see as the, the true spirit of, of Manchester? I think that um, whenever anyone asks me what a Mancunian's like, I always think we're great raconteurs. I, I, I always think we're really quick-witted and sarcastic and we, we love to tell a story. That's, that, that's what I, I think of a Mancunian. Because I, I just hate that term, what, what a proper mank is, because I, I, you're a Mancunian, Clint. You, you, know, you don't talk the same as, as somebody from Salford. Or, I, I just hate that because, because Liam Gallagher, you know, charged through the 90s in the way that he did, that, that's, that, should be this, that should signify what Manchester is. For me, it's just a... I just absolutely, I know it sounds cheesy. I just really love the people, like the, the pub culture, especially of the night. Is I used to love to be able to go in, not so much the drinking, but just to listen to the stories, especially growing up in, in, in South Manchester, the Irishmen at the bars and stuff like that. You could just listen, you could just listen to the stories for days on days. The cute box hardly ever got touched because 
someone to start a story and then it just go round and round and everyone would be telling stories all the time. So I, I just think Man, I think Mancunian is a fantastic storyteller and I think that's evident, especially across most of our music, uh, literature, uh, even in Lowry's paintings. I think, I think there's stories there that you can see across his work. Yeah, well, I, I think we're a very tolerant sitter. Um, I think we're well, very welcoming and sarcastic. I've never lived anywhere that's so quick-witted. I, I didn't, I didn't realise how quick-witted Mancunians were until I moved to Nottingham for three years. And then I was winning every argument because the real, and that's not because everyone in Nottingham's really slow. It's just, I didn't realize it, but Manchester, you have to be the quickest person with a quick remark. But in Nottingham, it felt like they were taking 30 minutes to, to come back with anything. I was walking around like cock of the water on Nottingham because it was so quick witted. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, that's always been my, that's my favorite trait, I think, of Mancunians, creative. Uh, quick witted, and I think we're we're a catalyst of um of many creative arts, of uh, world firsts. I Absolutely. Until this lockdown happened, I mean, the the, the music scene and the, the cultural scene generally in the city was amazing, wasn't it? Try and give us a little overview of what what you were seeing, but you know, way before the virus and the lockdown, towards the end of last year, early this year, I was Manchester for you. It was booming, man. I mean, we were talking like uh, before about how I how I'd never heard of spoken word. You couldn't move in Manchester without having a, a spoken word night on any night of the week. You couldn't move in Manchester without there being a gig on. And I felt bad because I, I've got like so many mates in so many bands that I could literally go and see each of them you know, from, from, from Monday to Sunday. You could, you could easily walk out. Venues, absolutely fantastic. You know, everything from the soup kitchen to Jimmy's to night and day. All these little, in fact, you know what? Manchester started feeling to what, before the coronavirus, what I actually imagined New York to feel like in the 70s. You had all these sort of little intimate music venues where you could like just feel the energy and there was so much popping off and different sort of styles of music. And I think we've really sort of come to the point now where genres don't actually matter anymore and everyone's sort of collaborating with everybody else. And that's what it was sort of feeling like towards uh, before we went into lockdown. And it's like, have you heard this? And I know I haven't got a clue what that is. And, and yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. It's, it's so hard to keep up with the pace and everything. And I think that's just, we should, I, I also want to touch on this is when we're talking about artists in Manchester in particular is when the coronavirus hit and we're all in lockdown, the people who were getting affected the most, Clint, were probably people like yourself, like yourself as a DJ, but also musicians. Musicians don't get paid next to nothing, do they? But they were the first people online doing streams to entertain the masses. And I think that we should celebrate that. And that's why I believe that everybody should put their hand in the pocket if they were going to gigs beforehand or, they, or that they should be helping their, their venues like Gulliver's or like Night and Day, or, you know, or like the Slug Out in Atherton and stuff. And we should, we, 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 we've got a city now that have a fantastic amount of artists and creativity that we, if we haven't got venues post lockdown to put them in, where do we go? Oh, it's going to be interesting because that's, that's the... That that you know that, that could be the tragedy if a lot of these venues don't open again. You know, it's like like I've been doing South Nightclub for 19 years every Saturday. It would have been 19 years two weeks ago, and it's hard for me. You know, Mr. Positive. I mean, glasses always half full. Even I'm thinking, how can a club like that survive in the new you know the new world as it's going to be? So, hopefully, we won't lose too many of these venues. But I know for a fact there's a couple of um, things that people are getting together. A couple of schemes that are going to be hopefully helping to relaunch a lot of the grassroots venues again at the end of the uh, the lockdown so fingers crossed on that one uh, if i was to ask you dave to name me three or four of your favorite humans of manchester who would they be okay uh first and foremost i will nominate uh, i'll nominate i'll say uh carolina hearn is probably my, one of my favorite mancunians i think 
Carolina Hearn when she, uh, she, an amazing writer and amazing comedian, but what she did with the royal family, where she turned the camera on us as a, um, it was just, it's it's incredible piece of writing. And that, 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 that broke the mold for everything that sort of followed when you're looking at the, the office and stuff like that, that sort of documentary style. I mean, you, I don't, you, you wouldn't have Gogglebox if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the royal family because it's, it's pretty much just, you know, it's built off the back of that. But the way she turned the camera on us and made, picked out our sort of quirks as, as um, Manx, just everything from the plastic around the back of the remote control to the, the swearing husband to, I don't know, the amount of fags that Denise and her mum would smoke and the stupid boyfriend and then the, the thick younger brother in Ralph Little and Anthony and stuff. It was just, she just got us. I've, never, I've, not, I've, not, I've not seen anybody be able to translate my experience or my youth growing up. That was my front room. That was me going around to my friends' front rooms and stuff like that. I've never seen anybody sort of do that and make it entertaining. I, 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 I'm really, really hilarious. I just can't, can you imagine the pitch going to BBC? So what I want to do, I want, I want to film everybody sat in the front room. What are they going to be doing? Nothing. They're going to be watching TV. What? Can you imagine that pitch at the beat? How, how do you, I mean, that in itself is just genius to, to, to be able to do that. And I mean, she'll be sorely lost. I think it's seven years next year since she passed away. Uh, but I think she's an absolutely incredible, especially for me as a, as a writer as well. She's, that's what I try and do is try and look at people in, in that sort of way, rather than sort of glorifier and stuff like that. It's cool to be, it's cool to be normal. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's what I think she, that, that's what I think she, she really brought. Yeah. Any others? A couple more? Uh, yeah. Johnny Bramwell, I'll talk about. Uh, he, for me, is my, is, is my idol for Mancunian lyricists. And a lot of people will say Morrissey, uh, but it's not. Johnny Bramwell's first uh, album. Uh, well, it's, it's all of stuff before I include Johnny Dangerously. That was, uh, I really enjoyed all that. Uh, but Natural History, for me, um, lyrics are absolutely unbelievable. Um, and then, like I said, it's, it's such a raconteur on stage. I could just, I could go and watch a, and now I could watch two hours of him just stood on stage talking. You didn't even have to play the music. I just think I just think he's uh, incredibly inspirational. And it, for me, it's always about when I look at Mancunian, it's how, how they play around with words, whether that's uh, for comedic purposes with Carolina Hearn or musically with uh, Johnny Bramwell, but also Anthony Burgess as well, who's a fantastic uh, writer, uh, Clockwork Orange as well, just how his his manoeuvre of uh, to, to create his, his own language for a Clockwork Orange about how the youth speak. That was just it was just. Again, when we're talking before, our people might think that you've got a, an idea and might think you're a dickhead for doing it. These are the people that are breaking the mold because they're trying something different. And I've always sort of been attracted to that. It's like, the, like we said, Carolina Hearn, that's, that was unheard of before, before the Royal Family. Again, A Clockwork Orange. I, Andy Bird is going to his uh, editor. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create this brand new language that these kids are going to speak you what? I, and then, yeah, he still did it, and it, and it was an amazing thing. And that's why I always, when I, I go teaching, I teach in workshops in prisons and all, a, a range of other stuff. But that's what I always say. I just push the envelopes. There is, you've got absolutely nothing to lose. You lose more by falling in line. Uh, so for me, and it, Mancunians, you always try and be different and just be outside uh, what other people expect for them. That's always been sort of a massive draw for me. Before you go, Deb, describe Manchester in three words. Manchester in three words. Creative. Catalyst, raconteurs. Dave Scott, a.k.a. R. Kid, thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. Thank you very much, Clint, thanks. That was Dave Scott. Thanks again for joining us for this series. We've loved chatting to some of our favourite Mancunians again whilst in lockdown. We hope that you've enjoyed listening. 
Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us. Feel free to leave us some feedback as well. We always like to hear from you. Stay safe. Look after each other, Manchester. See you in a bit. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.